How are you? Good? I'm good. Well, my name's John, as Jenny just said, usually based at Wimborne, um, but a real privilege to be asked to come here today to bring you God's word. Um, I've met a few of you guys already and <laughs> made a few messes as well, and um, but quite a few of you don't know that much about me, so I thought I'd just give you a bit of a background information. Married to Jill, that lady over there. We've been married for 43 years now. Where has that time gone? Two children, Hannah and Matthew, and three grandchildren now, Alfie, Barney, and Grace. Jill and I, this is very ironic, Jill and I met on a train. Uh, the train was going from Bournemouth to Southampton, and we were both working for the Midland Bank at the time. I was working at Christchurch, and Jill was working at Bournemouth. And we were on a two-week two course, so, so I got to know Joe Neil, got to, got to know Jill quite well. But, of course, being shy as I am, <laughs> didn't do anything about it. But then six months later, I got moved to the same branch as Jill. And, and a few months later, and after many bunches of red roses and writing dodgy poems, <laughs> it kind of went on from there. We, we bought our first flat together uh, in Poole in 1979. But to get a bank mortgage, we had to get married. So we did the honourable thing and got married. Almost immediately, I was sent on a three-week training course to Bristol. So Jill went back to mum and dad. <laughs> um, then we got moved, because um, I used to get moved about every two years. So I got moved to Andover, and Jill was moved to Winchester, and we set up our new home in Winchester. And the children came along, and everything was fine until after about 17 years in the bank, um, they made me redundant. I wasn't a Christian at the time, and um, Jill was going to the Winchester Family Church, and they were praying for us and our family. Um, this is where the railway comes in. As a, as a railway enthusiast, Somebody suggested I got a job working for British Rail. As it was called in those days, it's obviously got a few different names now. Um, to cut a long story short, that began a 21-year railway career with lots of highs and lots of lows. Um, as well as British Rail wanted me, God wanted me also, and. I gave my life to the Lord in 1991, about the same time as I started working for the railway. We, we thought our lives had hit the buffers in 2009. I had a stroke. Um, it badly affected my memory. Um, but God's been good. But ways that we don't necessarily expect. So, a full-time work... I was commuting from Winchester up to, up to London, so it's about two hours a day there and back, too much. So in 2011, 
they offered me ill health retirement, which I took. Um, God had been unsettling us before then, really. And then at West Point, a few years later, we felt God saying to, to us that we should be part of a new church plant. But we couldn't understand why Wimborne wasn't on the list. There was a list of 22 places and Wimborne wasn't there. Because we really felt it was Wimborne. So when Wimborne came up, it was a no-brainer. And so we've left our children in Hampshire and we moved down to Dorset. So let's get back onto um, let's get on to back onto Mark, and um, we're now on our fifth message in the series, and I think you've got about sixteen of these coming. So, what have we learnt so far? Mark, the shortest, sh- the shortest of the four New Testament Gospels, but he doesn't like to hang around. There's another little story here. When Jill and I um, first started going out, every Wednesday we used to go to pool, Speedway. Who's been to Speedway? <laughs> Two of you, right. <laughs> Three! <laughs> I know Jamie's Formula One, so he's probably not going to like this as much. But anyway, um, <clears throat> after all the, the sort of the waffle at the beginning, bit like I'm doing now. Um, the parade and the crowd waving and all that sort of stuff. You're ready for heat one. Four, four riders on their motorbikes. Two from the pool pirates and two from the opposition. And they're getting ready to go down to the first starting gate. Four laps, one gear, no brakes, First past the checkered flag wins. So a good start is vital. And the four riders line themselves up against the tapes. And the tapes rise. And they're off. And I would make the noise, but I'll... <laughs> yeah, maybe later. Um, they drop the clutch, and they're away into the first bend. And actually, that's what likes... I liken this to, to Mark's Gospel. He doesn't muck about, he just lets the clutch go, winds it on, and goes straight into verse 1. And he doesn't take his foot off the gas till it comes to an end. So as we go through Mark's Gospel, we're going to see, a bit like I saw in the bank and on the railway, lots of highs and lots of lows exactly what it was, must have been like for those 12 disciples all those years ago. Call this message today, Jesus, mad, bad, or God. Jesus, mad, bad, or God. So we've got three points. So when I first put this together, I thought, this sounds a bit like the old Clint Eastwood good, the bad, the ugly, didn't it? Yeah, but it's nothing like that. 1966, showing my age again. Right, here we go. So 
So let's pick up um, Mark's Gospel in chapter 3. There we go. And I'll read from verse 13. Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. They came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. And these are the 12 he chose. Simon, who he named Peter. James and son. James and son. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder or Bonerges, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, who was the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. One time, Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather again. Soon, he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. As is often the case, Mark assumes that we know a lot of things already, so he doesn't bother putting it in his book. Because Luke tells us in chapter 6, verse 12 that not only did Jesus go up to the mountain, but he'd been praying all night to make sure that he'd got the team, the 12, right. And it's very helpful that Mark lists it here, not only for when Jill and I do the crossword, and it says one of the 12 disciples, um, but it's very helpful to know and remind us just how how difficult it must have been for these guys being thrown together, following Jesus around for a couple of years. So unlike um, Strictly Come Dancing or Dancing on Ice, where they take, where they sort of say, in no particular order, this team had more of a pecking order. And Simon Peter was definitely the captain, the rock. A successful commercial fisherman before joining the team. And he regularly took the lead very eager. So he used to go over the top quite a bit. Like somebody else, I know. But his enthusiasm was attractive and compelling. James and John, Bonerges, what a cracking nickname. They made, that made up the inner three. Sons of Thunder, fiery, tempered, fishing partners, tough, uncompromising, volatile, not afraid to call a spade a spade. Andrew was Peter's brother. He was another fisherman, eager to bring out, either to bring other people to meet Jesus. Philip, another fisherman, he was a very, he had a very questioning attitude. Bartholomew, a bit of a cynic, honest and straightforward. Matthew, Swindling tax collector. Thomas, a doubter, 
but very courageous. James, son of Alphaeus, he was the brother of Matthew. Thaddeus didn't really understand God's plan. But he went on with it regardless. Simon the zealot, or the message says, the Canaanite. He was angry, and he was radical, and he was young. And Judas Iscariot, the bent treasurer, the traitor. All Christ's disciples were called to be disciples, which means you're a learner or a student. But not all of them went on to be apostles, meaning the one who was sent. So let's go on to our first point. Was Jesus mad? Peter and his friends knew when they became, when they joined Jesus in a circle, it was going to be costly. And in the very first verse, after they've been appointed, it all kicks off. Jesus is trying to escape the crowd from the beach. So they hide in a house, which is probably Peter's, but we're not sure. But the mob are soon banging on the door. So they don't even have time for a meal. Now this is important because in those days, whilst we're used to grabbing Asani or getting KFC from the drive-thru, extended meal times in those days were very important. Part of the norm, really. So when mum hears and his half-siblings hear that they thought he was a bit a bit poorly, mentally unwell. One commentary I read suggested that that might be a bit harsh and that Jesus was suffering from religious mania and had become an eccentric. The message, the message says, suspected he was getting carried away with himself. Whatever. As well as his opponents, he's got to contend with his family. Has he really lost the plot? Let's go on to our second point, which was, was Jesus bad? If we read Mark's Gospel again from verse 22, that will help us a bit on this one. So from verse 22, but the teachers of the religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He will never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth. All sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit 
will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he is possessed by an evil spirit. The opposition from the scribes was far more serious than, than his family. And obviously they were suffering from hatred, being bitter and jealous of, of what Jesus was doing. You can almost imagine these guys sort of rocking up with their clipboards and their pencil cases, a bit like me when I was working on the, on the railway as an internal auditor. writing little things down and looking for brownie points and sending off a damning report to my boss about where I've been to. This lot have heard what Jesus has done in the synagogues and have travelled all the way from Jerusalem to see him in action. And that's a mean feat in itself without, without any trains in those days. They don't try to argue that Jesus is mad. After all, no lunatic can heal people with a touch or a command. But they argue that he must be in cahoots with the devil. Some of you may have seen in your Bible the name Beelzebub. This means the Lord of the high place. And he was a Philistine idol who gets a mention in the Old Testament 2 Kings 1 verse 2, where he's referred to as a god of Ekron, a kind of mystic, meg, pagan deity. <laughs> In this context, he's the top demon. Sadly, these days, many people are still trying to deny that Jesus is God, as they don't want to accept that authority over him. So let's go on to our third point, which is, is Jesus God? Although the priests and the politicians and even his own family weren't sure who Jesus was, the spirits had no problem. These fallen angels instantly recognized the Lord Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God. Some of you may have noticed that I started on verse 13, so I skipped verses 11 and 12. So just popping back to those, this is what you missed. And whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the spirits would throw them down to the ground in front of them, shrieking, you are the son of God. But Jesus sternly commanded the spirits not to reveal who he was. So if Jesus had been a prophet or a teacher, the demons wouldn't have been that worried as what they were in those days. They could plainly see that Jesus had the authority of God. In the run-up to Jesus going to the various synagogues, they must have been quite comfortable in there, in that environment, not being challenged in any way. And obviously when Jesus comes up, comes to an abrupt end, and they don't like it. 
Why do you think he's? Uh, why do you think Jesus didn't want the evil spirits to reveal his identity? Well, in those days, there was a lot of misconceptions about the Messiah. Obviously, there was no internet in those days, or Facebook, or stuff like that. But the huge crowds were expecting a political and a military leader who would free them from Rome and Rome's control. And they thought that the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament would be that sort of guy. So Jesus didn't really want the evil spirits confusing everybody, even more than what they were already confused. After what's said in verse 22, Jesus decides enough is enough. If he hadn't done anything at that stage, people would be thinking it was true. So he comes back and says, how can Satan cast out Satan? I think this is a good question. The religious opponents assumed that there was a pecking order of demons. So this would have meant a lot to them. Probably more to them than what it means to us, but They understand this, but they're not willing to accept it. So although the religious leaders had clearly seen the Son of God, they denied his deity and his holy, and his holy fellowship with the Spirit of God. To say that the power of Jesus was from Satan was the ultimate blasphemy. So Jesus comes back with a double whammy, two, two parables to, to prove to the scribes that they're false. One, if Satan was fighting Satan, there wouldn't be any Satan left. And two, who'd break into a house in broad daylight and try to steal a strong man's possessions whilst he's indoors without first tying him up? So in other words, Jesus is going to bind Satan first before taking over his domain. We're going to be covering parables a bit more later in Mark, in chapter 4, so I won't do any more about parables at the moment. But In verses 28 to 30, Jesus also gives us some further assurances. He's come to bring forgiveness. But he gets a bit miffed if anyone likens the power of spirit. Le sorry, likens the power of the Holy Spirit to a lunatic spirit. You can understand him getting a bit unhappy about that, can't you? If they're saying this, they are guilty of an eternal sin. In other words, they've rejected his offer of eternal salvation. There's a few more um, scriptures to back this up. In 1 John 1 verse 9, we're told, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness except for the sin that causes us to reject God's message of salvation. Matthew 12, 31 tells us, Therefore I tell you, 
Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And Luke 12 verse 10 tells us, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Blasphemy is wicked. In the Old Testament, Leviticus 24, verse 16, took a very hard line on this. And it, they say it takes the sacred things of God and plays down their value. The work of people who have no true love of God. Jesus said no to this when he was on the wilderness and tempted by Satan, as we may have read in Matthew 4, from verses 1 to 11. I don't know about you, but occasionally I've wondered if I've committed this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit myself. I don't know what you guys think about that, but... I had a look at a few commentaries, and and the best one I found was... um, the NIV Life Application Bible, which gave a definition of attributing to the devil what is actually the work of the Holy Spirit. Deliberate, regular rejection of the word of the Holy Spirit is rejecting God himself. So the religious leaders accused Jesus of blasphemy, but ironically, It was they who were the guilty ones when they looked at Jesus in the face and accused him of being possessed by Satan. So on reflection, I think I'm in the clear. Paraphrasing something from the message, which I like very much, it says, it's a bit like sawing off the branch of a tree on which you're sitting. So, I've given you three scenarios there, and now it's time for your participation, because I'm going to ask you to vote on the three things. So, it's a show of hands, please. Number one, who thinks Jesus was mad? Anybody think he was mad? Nil point. Who thinks Jesus was bad? Good. (laughs) I said to Dale, I said, will anybody put their hand up for this? (laughs) Um, Three. (laughs) Oh, there he is. He's he's hiding behind him. Who thinks Jesus was the Son of God? Few. I don't know all you guys. I don't know whether everybody put their hand up. So if anybody was hedging their bet, <laughs> then you may not have decided to make Jesus your Lord and Saviour. You can put that right here today by asking him into your life, just like I did back in Winchester all those years ago. If that is you, 
Come and talk to me. And I can pray with you and help you take the next steps. So for the rest of you guys, now we're content that Jesus was the Son of God. What are we going to do about it? More importantly, what does he want us to do about it? Some of you guys may have been disappointed with God and how he's dealt with matters that we've brought to his attention through prayer, through prayer or through other things. I have been. We'd learnt, we, we learned 2,000 or so years ago that we were expecting a different sort of Messiah to the one that came from heaven to earth. So... I think back to my, to my illness in 2009, and although I'm much better, I still have difficult days. And I had a hip replacement 12 months ago, and that's much better, but it's still not 100%. But I'm still trusting in God. God's done it his way, which is not necessarily our way. But we've just got to press on with him and trust him completely. And let's think also about those disciples. As I mentioned earlier, they were a learner or a student. So they had the L plates on. None of them were chosen for their ability or talent. They all came from a wide range of backgrounds and experiences. A bit like us here today, really, isn't it? Don't know about how many fishermen we've got. But the important thing was that they all shared their willingness to obey Jesus and follow him. They all allowed the Lord to train them despite all their difficulties. So, we've got to allow the Lord to do that to us. What's he saying to you today that he may be wanting you to be training up for or other things that you might want to do? So, I'm going to invite the band back. And while they're just doing that, let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, Lord. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you're not mad. We thank you that you do things in different ways, but you have our best interests at heart. Lord Jesus, we also know that you're not bad. Evil spirits know you, but that doesn't mean you're one of them. So, Lord Jesus, we know that you are God. That you were sent from heaven to earth to show us the way. And you want us to follow you in all the things that we do. Lord, would you continue to mould us like you did with those disciples. Turning us into the people you want us to be. 
equip us, Lord, to do the work you've called us to, Lord. Provide us with all those tools that we need to do the job and to do it well for you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.